The One in Your Side is a podcast recorded on the various lands of First Nations peoples, land that always was and always will be Aboriginal land. While there's air that is breathed and water that nourishes and provides, ownership of this land remains unresolved. Respects are paid to elders past and present in the ongoing quest for self-determination and reclamation of land. Happy New Year to those listening out there. Uh, just a friendly reminder that it is a new year, as a matter of fact. I needed to be reminded myself by media. It has been one of those historic years last year for many various reasons. It impacted upon a lot of us in many various ways. It's impacted upon me in that I actually had alternative plans for this episode This was originally going to involve an interview that was going to be done through a friend and colleague of mine named Gail, and I had it saved and everything went well, it was quite a good experience, and then I've looked to edit it earlier on the week and discovered that the data had been lost. So my first immediate reaction was gremlins or someone has remotely hacked into my computer and deleted some precious information. But once I was able to get through my conspiracy phase and general freak out as one is wont to do when something of value has suddenly gone walking, uh, I realised just to uh, kind of dust myself off and try to have another stab at it. So I'm hoping that this isn't too much of a sudden change of pace for people, but I think How I'll reframe this episode is that I'll make it a New Year's reflection and do it lone wolf-like. And I'm also thinking of maybe doing this as a two-parter. So what I will do this episode is is maybe do as I was going to try to do with Gail and do a bit of personal reflection, tell my story. And then into the next episode, I'll I'll get a bit more political and, and ranty. So the thing to do during the holiday season... I hope that might be of some use to to some folks out there in the sense that it's about disclosing a bit about myself and why I've been doing this for half a year and hopefully it might provide to to listeners out there a bit more context about myself and, and why I've fanatically gotten into doing this podcast project. So to talk a little bit more personally about myself, um, I have mentioned to you that one episode's going to be political and one episode is going to be personal and this one being the personal one to me both tend to mesh together I don't really see too much of a separation I think there is an amount of privilege that a person might have to say well uh, we can keep it in personal while we can talk politics but I think for me it's it's one and the same in the sense that I think one's personal story and experiences can inform their politics. And for that I think it, it's really worth examining both in equal measure. So I'm hoping to try to do this for, for people's benefit in this episode to talk a little bit about who I am. And also the reasons that have impacted upon 
creating my political worldview and why I, I wish to get involved in projects like this podcast, of which I consider as very much an activist-based one, and hoping that it's a tool to, to reach out to people and hopefully also an instrument for potential organising. Um, so I've got that bread in the oven and, and hopefully it's baking. <laughs> we'll see. So me, why am I here and why am I doing this podcast? Well, for me, I think it, my voice is, is something that I've earned, I feel. When I was younger, it was often difficult to be social and I didn't necessarily know the, the social rules so much. And I wondered why that was so. And there was often a lot of social anxiety there and and wondering what one does in this situation and how one strikes up a conversation and how one just tends to be quite social. And and also I had a bit of a, a an ignorance over what was inappropriate and what was appropriate behaviour. Nothing to the extreme of... Um, dropping my Dax in town square and, and showing myself to the world, but just social faux pas where I think, I know now that if I said or did something that um, it might result in, in someone feeling a bit affronted by it, but uh, there was a time there that, that I wasn't so aware and I wasn't really getting too much feedback from my family so much on all of that. And for a while there, it was something that was quite a stressful circumstance for me. It's something I had to try to, well, I've spent the best part of 20 years getting my head around, just knowing the rules to things uh, of being social. But it's been in recent years that um, I've been able to get my head around what might have been going on. And for me, it is to say that I'm pretty confident that a fair whack of my family is on the autism spectrum, either undiagnosed or diagnosed. So it's a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And also <laughs> the members of the family that um, I'm still able to connect with, as opposed to the ones that I've estranged myself from. Um, so I, I find it a bit confronting and daunting to talk about this stuff. Uh, this has probably been the, the most public I've been about saying such a thing. Before that, it's been private, and I think the reasons why it has been private is because there has been a lot of work to, to really get my head around what's going on and why things are so, and also it, making sure that I'm right on this. This isn't something that uh, I don't necessarily want to be frivolous about in saying, and particularly if I'm going to say it on a podcast channel. But it's been an important aspect of my life in the sense that it has taken a little while to get there. Um, something that I kind of noticed perhaps in my teens and up until, well, I'm now 41, so there's been a good 20 to 25 years of at least having an innate sense that something was going on and only until recently just being able to, to put my finger on it. So, yeah, it isn't about shaming or outing anyone here. It's more about just saying, well, this is what's going on and this is how it's impacted upon me and this is my role in it and this is what I'm looking to do to try to, to move forward from here. And also trying to uh, to use, uh, get a bit of value out of it in the sense that one's life story should inform one's politics. So 
When you think back on having such an experience, you, you think back on where it was particularly stressful. And uh, when I think back, I, I can particularly think about the, the latter years of high school and also following that up with going straight into uni and doing my undergrad. That was a period of time where, as I mentioned, it, it was very difficult to um, to know what the rules were when socialising with people. And I kind of felt very self-conscious I suppose for me, I, I feel like I might have some featuring on the on the spectrum. I, I don't know how much of that has just been learned behaviour from other members of my family, or how much of it I just have a uh, a natural uh, presentation of. But I do know that over the years, I also have, as part of trying to find answers towards what was going on, it has indirectly led to a lot of self improvement about how I present myself, how I talk. Doing a podcast like this, if you told me 10, 20 years ago that I'd be doing stuff like this, uh, I would laugh. But here I am. So in finding answers, there has been the happy byproduct of doing a lot of self-improvement and, and doing what it takes to be able to, um, to, be able to communicate with people effectively uh, and also knowing what one's boundaries are. So I guess getting back to the times when that wasn't a certain thing and that was high school and, and uni, it was at the time when um, I noticed that uh, nothing seemed to be settled in a calm manner. Things always need to escalate. My reality was that in order for things to be resolved, I needed to have a meltdown or, or really get into a heated argument with someone. That's just the way things were. I, I didn't know any anything else. Uh, it wasn't until I'm really getting to the second or third year at, at uni where I kind of realised, well, these people are talking about contentious issues and it's all being done in a very calm, rational manner. That was new to me um, and uh, it also looked healthy. So I thought, well, let's <laughs> let's explore that a bit more. And exploring that was a pretty painful thing thing when there wasn't really much to fall back on and perhaps the other thing to to share at this point as well is that there wasn't really many people to talk to about this stuff because I think for me we still live in a world where we're only prepared to talk about stuff if we can actually put what's in our head into words and I think it takes a very capable and worldly offsider to be able to support someone when um, they can't necessarily do that so that was kind of my experience during those years, knowing that there's stuff going on in my head and not really being able to, to put it into words. But also it was a time and getting back 20 years where um, the actual medical clinical literature on autism spectrum wasn't really there. This was back in a day where it was still things like Asperger's, where anyone who is considered to be on some sort of autism spectrum really are featuring some vivid autistic behaviours where there is profound antisocial behaviour and an ability to, to kind of do what one does on a day-to-day -day basis. Unfortunately, back then, the net didn't really drag out as far as, as looking at people that present with behaviours where they might be a bit socially awkward, but with that awkwardness comes a high degree of secondary social anxiety because you don't want to be awkward and you're trying to hide the awkwardness, but you don't know how to do that, but you kind of mull your way through. Um, so it's, it's a very, it was a very silent horror story that, um, that was happening there. 
So lots of isolation, basically, and, and not really feeling like I was living in a world where, um, where I could really talk, articulate, and, um, and know that there was someone that was going to probably listen to, to what was going on. Of course, there was also some makeshift excuses and rationalizations about why I was feeling the way I was. Like, you know, I was a teenager, it's growing pains, it's puberty, which of course is valid because that's what anyone would kind of feel like when they're going through adolescence. Like you, you feel that sense of, of uncertainty and that transition from childhood to adulthood and also feeling, um, feeling new feelings and having fur where there never was any fur before. So good to always get the Simpsons quote in. But that's where I'm coming from in that was a rite of passage to kind of feel that way and have those experiences and having that awkwardness and often sense of anxiety. And the explanation I had at that time was that it was written, that it was attributed to adolescence. But looking back on it, I think there was a little bit more going on. And possibly also a side story to this too is that um, I had a childhood pet, a dog, and during adolescence, like I, I really broke out, like really, really broke out in zits. Um, and I thought, well, that's adolescence. But when you compare me to a few other kids, like I really broke out. But I know now that um, possibly what was also adding into the mix was a bit of, uh, it wasn't an allergic react to my childhood pet. So that contributed to the breakout. And I kind of know this now because whenever I um, find myself in the company of, of long-haired animals, you know, dogs and cats, I'll have a general sneezing episode. So I guess the things that you know in hindsight, but I, I guess my, uh, my point is that... Um, stuff I know now, uh, I wish I kind of knew back then, and it required a personal passage to, um, to eventually make sense of what was going on. This also had, a, had ramifications about how I did with not only just wider society and, and people, but also within my own family, with a few family members, some of which I, who I don't necessarily have contact with now, yeah, back then I really kind of had a sense of, of I'm not necessarily feeling loved or being checked in with. If I did raise a problem, then I was the problem. And also my contribution to that as well is that if there is a problem, it's got to be dealt with in a very combative manner because, like I said, there was no other way of knowing how to deal with it. So the message I was kind of getting out of this is that... Um, this is all me, that um, whenever I act up, it's me that's doing it, it's me that's got to correct it, it's me that's got the problem. So I, I kind of internalised a few things and um, that also led to the, to the anxiety of, of really needing to know what the right thing was, as well as you know the, the general idea of, of trying to work out what the social rules were. So I'm kind of finding myself talking a bit about difficulties in, in being social and connecting with people. I'd also like to mention, and uh, I suppose this is where we're going to err on the side of political, this also happened, I think, on a very threatening political backdrop to working class peoples. This period of time was during the 90s. I would say that there was a pretty hostile Australian political economic environment happening at the time. 
It was on the coattails of the Hawke-Keating government where they were really pushing through a neoliberal agenda and that meant curtailing union movement, putting a break on wages, being able to control um, economic flows when it came to working contributions, all that sort of stuff. So there's often that that media narrative or that common narrative that it was all Howard's doing being a liberal, but I guess a, a true working class experience would say that this is something that was contributed through the two major parties at the time. So the Hawke-Keating government and then once the Howard government took over, it was a, a case of really turning in the screws. And I think once Howard came in, he compounded the economic changes with also the cultural changes. I did notice that during the Howard years that... Um, I really did feel a sense of being on the outside, on the outer, and I wondered why that was so, and then I'm kind of seeing what's being presented on TV commercials and also TV soaps at the time, like Home and Away and Neighbours, what the ideal was for an Australian youth, and it seemed to be white, middle class, um, if a person of colour or other ethnicity ever got a look in, it was because they were a supporting plot device or it was always something invariably around issues of multiculturalism or dealing with racism. So there was identity and expression, but it was always marginal. It was always something that was still within the lens of white normativity. And how I encountered that as a kid was thinking, well... If I'm going to be accepted um, and if people are going to actually uh, acknowledge me, then I need to be skinny, athletic, really try to hark on the, the white part of me as much as I can. Yeah, just another bit of disclosure there. I'm, I'm part Mauritian, Scottish and Irish. So uh, the Mauritian side of me still remains a mystery to this day, but even more so back in that time where I really had to back that down in order to fit in. So looking back on it through my own experience in the 90s, it really did feel like a one-two punch, like the the first jab through labourite economic reform and then a right cross with Howard with trying to present Australia rewrit through a, a white conservative lens. So I think what's been really under-examined in the 90s within Australia was a time of great social change, for better or for worse, during that decade. Through my own personal experience, I think something that has been quite under-recognised. That stuff I've touched upon in previous episodes and I think previous interviews on other podcast channels. But again, there's a lot to talk about there, particularly if you're going to talk about how there was a real working class impact. There is something to be said about how these changes during the 1990s had a very direct impact upon working class life, which I might look to explore further in the next episode. It wasn't all top down. I mean, I also acted out. Uh, I've mentioned about really having to try to tamp down the Mauritian side of me, um, identify as white. I remember one particular example was when, also during the 90s, um, there was a lot of reform that happened with soccer or football in Australia. We know it as soccer, I guess. So 
there was reform in the sense that at the start of the 90s, um, Australian football teams within the National League were ethnic-based. I'm very proud in showing their ethnic roots, but as time progressed, they had to kind of whitewash, present corporate images. A lot of the ethnic iconography that were in the club logos needed to be removed. Probably the biggest example I can think of is um, Sydney, Croatia, where at the start of the 90s, they were Sydney, Croatia. And then these days, they're now referred to as United 58, 1958 being the year that the, the club originated. And the only real thing that you can tell that the club existed since 1958 is because on the logo that the, the checkerboard still remains, you know, so... The ethnic roots of clubs like United 58, <laughs> uh, they're able to, uh, it's been a bit of a to and fro in terms of how they've been able to subtly retain some of their historic roots. I mean, you know, within a corporate view, that's just like a checkerboard, something that looks nice and cute. But look at it a bit closely, you might see that there are some historic ties behind it and still at the same time remaining safe enough for an imagined Australian public who are very hungry on rugby league and cricket and maybe lured into the football soccer market by seeing de-ethnicised clubs. Now, I got sucked into that because I was actually um, very much arguing for the corporatisation of Australian soccer clubs and um, I think that was also because I was a big rugby league fan and also cricket fan and, yeah, I was part of that bandwagon where um, if you're going to cater to an Australian public, it's, it's a public that follows a variety of sports and is very sports-centric, uh, very passionate about it and very knowledgeable. Um, so you've got to try to uh, make it as apolitical and palatable as possible. And hence, I think that's why the ethnic clubs got the corporate wash. But it didn't really last that long anyway, because at the start of the 2000s, then you find um, that those clubs went by the by. The National Soccer League got dismantled, and then the A-League started by the end of the 2000s anyway. That's a different story and possibly potentially a new podcast episode later on, which I'd really like to do. Got some ideas. But anyway, I advocated for that kind of reform in my ignorant teenage years. And I think these days there's no coincidence that um, while I've kind of revised that viewpoint um, and opposed that process of de-ethnicizing soccer clubs I don't think it's any accident that while I've had that conscious experience it's also been about recognizing all aspects of my identity and also falling away from following sports like rugby league and cricket and really seeing the the political and racial contradictions within those sports um yeah don't get me started on Donald Bradman but anyway I digress so the 90s was a time of great uh in my mind and through my experience, great political economic upheaval within Australia. Um, and within my family, it was felt keenly. My mum lost the job in the late 90s. She, she was in public service for, I think, for a good 15 to 20 years. The recession kicked off a lot of public service reform. And then my mum was kind of 
waiting in the eaves, seeing what was going to become of it. And then by the end of the decade, she was made redundant. She worked in a job within the public service that would not exist these days because everyone's got an app for it. So in a time before smartphones, my mum had a job within the public service. So, and then after that, she had to kind of um, pick herself up, dust herself off uh, and reinvent herself uh, as a small business owner. And that was the project of the 2000s. Not a very certain path. Also, my dad in the 2000s, a factory worker, also lost his job in the early 2000s uh, due to the business that he worked with for over a decade being outsourced. So my dad was, I suppose, a victim of an increasingly shrinking domestic manufacturing market, which took flight to where wages were cheaper and production was cheaper. Um, so my dad kicked around for a little while there working temporary jobs until fortunately he was able to find an, a, a company that kind of held true to that idea that a lot of business legitimacy comes with being domestically run and having domestically based employees and workers. That was a bit of fortune for my father, especially when this was getting to the late noughties. And yeah, my, my dad was kind of moving past an age where you're kind of not really fussed about what you do and you're definitely becoming more mindful of what the future is, is holding. So the 90s, looking back on it uh, and becoming a bit more articulate about it, uh, it was certainly for me a, a sense of, of great political cultural change. But then by the 2000s, then there was definite economic impacts which were keenly felt by myself and my greater family. And I suppose for myself, job-wise, there was that rude awakening where I was expect like I ended up with a couple of degrees by the end of the noughties, so an undergrad and an honours, um, which I try not to boast about. It's been more a sense of necessity. Like, I mean, if I didn't need to go to uni, then I wouldn't have gone to uni. If I knew there was going to be a job for life at the end of high school, then I would have done it. The nineties were telling me that that wasn't going to happen, so I need to go to uni. So... Got the degrees, but then there was still half an expectation that I was going to get a job at the end of it. Not so much. Uh, once I got the degrees, um, the rude awakening was that you are grateful to get a job where it is full time, but you're making a fast impact in the sense that it has a term. So it's not a full time job for life. It's a full time job for three, two to three years normally. So there was that pressure um, to try to hold something down. And I suppose I can't talk that much because these days there isn't even a guarantee of actually finding work once you get a couple of degrees under your belt. So there has been that gradual decline, both within a labour base point and also, I would argue, working class life where I think there continues to be a pressure to be as aspirational and as middle class as possible. And that could also lead to escaping any potential problems. So if you want to shore yourself up the long term, you be an aspro. You still try to live the Australian dream. But anyway, again, I digress. Stuff to potentially talk about for the second episode. Um, and hopefully that's particularly something that, that people out there can identify with, where there is that pressure to aspire to something in order to find meaning and purpose and for anyone to listen to you, you've got to be saying, well, I'm heading somewhere. I have goals. Not so much character or who you are or 
what your values are or how you might to contribute to yourself and your community, um, how you administer effective self-care, how you maintain your health. No, it's how you present yourself to the world and how you contribute to the economy. That's where you tend to get your voice and that's what I think what a lot of people are still trying to buy into, but I don't know. I think particularly after this year with the COVID pandemic that a lot of that has now been fundamentally challenged. But I suppose with a podcast like this, let's explore and see what the sentiment is and let's gauge it. And I'm hoping to kind of do that into the episodes ahead. I've hoped I've set a scene there for what's happened for me uh, within the 90s and the noughties in that it hasn't necessarily been easy, but I, I hope that it, that it has been a, a very quick expose of what working class life looks like, particularly for someone that did have the grace and luck to be able to have a higher enough education to be able to articulate and talk about what I'm experiencing rather than having flashes of emotions going through my head or senses of confusion. Although that stuff was still there, um, particularly with the fact that there was stuff going on in my family where there wasn't really anything that I could draw upon to explain what was really happening. There was still a lot of stuff there that I could explain. And I suppose that's a double-edged sword for me. In <laughs> I suppose I refer, and at the risk of, of sounding like... Um, and an incel alt-right type, um, that idea of what happens when you um, when you take that pill within the matrix where you're just being offered reality and nothing more. But there it is. And I think from there there's kind of like a duty, and particularly for the needs of safety and also health and also comradeship and just being human, I think it's right to, to actually articulate what's going on and, and try as best as one can to respond, particularly when one has had a working class experience. And so in terms of that experience, that was mine. Um, it's not so easy at the moment, but I suppose what was really stressful back then was that all this stuff was going on and I could only explain so much of it. I only really understood so much of it and I was only allowed to talk and discuss so much of it, but it is what it is. And I think for me, what the 2010s were about was making sure that that didn't destroy me. And that's the bare truth of it. That pretty much defines my 2010s, where I had to really get some definitive answers. And that was a hit and miss effort. I'd like to do future podcast episodes, and I'm hoping that this might be of use to, to some listeners out there where trying to go through the health system to get answers is a very hit and miss process. I think a lot of that's got to do with it well a couple of reasons one is the political loading of some of the clinicians like i mean there's some pretty fucked up conservative gps out there <laughs> and also the second reason is is a structural issue there where someone like a gp or a psychiatrist is seen at the apex of the health structure and everything flows downward where I'd advocate turning that on its head where you're seeing case managers or clinical collaborative practice being at the top and then you've got a real administration of those efforts happening on, around and below, which could effectively lead to the erosion and... The, the disappearance of GPs as an institution. But 
you know, I, I kind of get the feeling that um, I'll, I would get some resistance from some GPs on that, particularly the ones that like to drive their BMWs and have their North Shore spoils. Because, I mean, hey, they spent 10 to 15 years in uni. They deserve it, don't they? That's what their parents say. So, 2010s, I needed to do what I needed to do. I did find some supportive friends, but by the end of it, it was looking quite codependent. There was one friend I really had to estrange myself with because there was a really bad addiction to alcohol there, and I was being dragged into it. So I had to kind of let go of that one. Another one where um, I was... I mean, the guy was around to, to listen and support me, but but I was feeling stuck in that, in the sense that by the time I was starting to get my shit together with this guy, it still felt like I needed to be the one that needed to be saved in order for the friendship to work. And that's where the codependent dynamic existed. So, you know, it's, it's something that, that I think confronts a lot of people, like, in the interests of maintaining friendships and not rocking the boat and being a good person, do you maintain friends or do you try to be authentic and a little bit truthful and perhaps a little bit selfish and think, well, this mightn't be the healthiest arrangement, time to let it go, despite trying as much as one can to maintain the relationship. Um, and it was a bit like that in the latter half of the 2010s, like a lot of people who had Close and long-term friendships with I outgrew. I suppose my side is that I kind of hark back to my uh, my teenage days where I think the behaviour on my end was compatible at some points, but I know I could have done it better. But at the same time, I, I think I was trying to draw upon the fact that there was a lot of stuff in my life that I was really threatening to outgrow. And I suppose the fear is, is that once you leave that, then... What else is there? So that was the 2010s. And I think my own family within that decade did some repair as well. That was a time of where there had to be some hard decisions made with who to still remain connected to within the family, who to estrange oneself from in order to maintain safety. But that was, and at the risk of making that sound very clinical, that was the repair work that, that had to happen in order to, to retain one's health. That's, well, that's what I had to do. So the family I did remain connect with, the, there was some recovery there, like I said, with my folks. My dad was able to find a steady job with a friendly firm. Uh, my mum was able to hold down a small business. So that's that's been the, the 2010s. And I think for me, it's a, I'm now at a, a place now where I'd like to try to do stuff a bit for me now. I've only really been able to get some help and get a clear answer um, as to what's been going on in my life and what I've encountered, again, through a hit-and-miss health service. But ironically enough, the only way that I was really able to, to find the help that I needed was just through rando window shopping of GPs and also just reaching out to friends through social media. Um, and some good advice came out of the tree. So I set myself up some good help at the start of last year. But of course, the double whammy hit and the pandemic struck. And so it was a lot of hard work trying to keep up to date with what the, the social rules were because things change by week by week, but also um, sticking to my plan of, uh, of trying to 
get the answers that I needed and trying to um, to shore up my own sense of self-help and self-care. So in the many ways, last year was really a battle. And I suppose a casualty of that is, is that I really did lose um, a lot of socialization. But I'm hoping that this new year is a, a chance to, to really turn that around. And also, I think there are a few things I'd like to try to do now to, to get a sense of, well, I can't say purpose, and I can't go sounding like a Disney movie and just kind of just enjoying the sunset and leaves falling off trees and, and nat- nature moments like that, but uh, maybe a sense of fulfillment and also what one can do in response to a system that really can potentially fuck around vulnerable people. These are all the things I'm now thinking about in response, and maybe this is probably the the grounds to to move into the second episode. But there it is, and I think it has been a case of, of dodging some potential bullets as well. I mean, the big fear in my 30s and moving into being 41 was that legitimate idea of survival, where there was that great fear of, what if I don't get the answers? What if I can't figure it out? What if I do fall off the edge that I'm not middle class enough? I won't economically survive enough. Um, I will be a statistic and no one will really bat an eyelid. These are all the things that haunted me in my 30s. And this is where there was a real pressure to try to find answers. And plus, it's not glamorous. When, when people look at this at face value, and I think this is something that, um, that potentially some listeners can relate to, the judgments will be there straight away that, oh, you're struggling a bit. That seems to be like a limitation of character. Not so much that there is a complex story there going on that you don't necessarily have an hour to listen to. Not very sexy at all. But I'm hoping through a podcast project like this, I can say things like this. Here are other people's stories talks on politics, and then suddenly the dialogue on such things is legitimate. It's real, it's accepted, and it's got authenticity. It's not necessarily something that has to be swept under the carpet or seen as uncool. It actually has some real validity, and it should be some grounds for potential organising, hopefully. But at the very least, I'm hoping that it is something that um, where I can just find some new friends and have some healthy friendships because I've kind of come out of something and um, I want to try to find something healthy and I want to share that healthiness with other people. I want to find other people where they have similar ideas that it's about society, stupid. <laughs> it's about the community. It's about one's class identity and organizing and reaching out with other people and finding the balance of one's experience versus what one learns and what one picks up along the way. Um, Not to crowbar one's experiences uh, into some political ideology um, and discard anything that doesn't fit or trying to fill the gap in one's sense of meaning and value through signing on to some political creed. I feel the crux of what should be happening here is a reconnection. At least I can speak for myself on that. I would like to try to reconnect, and I'm hoping through something like a podcast channel that can happen because I feel grateful that I've been able to get this far. Uh, It was only recently that I heard a story uh, about an old uni mate and 
during the last decade. At one point, was a close friend of mine. I found some news that they uh, have been criminalised. Um, I don't want to try to get into too many particulars in case I might accidentally identify them, but in many ways, I, I thought, well, you're kind of heading potentially to that situation. But now they've got the rest of their life to think about that. I think that could have potentially been me. That was something I was scared about. The ironic thing was is that this was within a circle of friends that were kind of telling me to be careful and got to watch myself. But look, here we are. Uh, I just wondered maybe they could have just been looking elsewhere and keeping an eye on other people for any potential trouble. But that's the past. So, yeah, at this point I'd just like to get towards the end of my little ranty here by trying to suggest that hopefully this podcast channel will be an aid towards connecting with people, uh, having social community connections, uh, it also being a potential tool for political organisation. I want to stress to listeners that I'm really, i really not trying to do this as a trip of being a social media influencer. I'm seeing a lot of lefties out there that that are doing projects like this for that purpose, to to try to raise as many likes as they can, to really try to be the fonts of wisdom and articulate what's going on and and really um, trying to engender a following because of that. I particularly see that through members of political organisations, that iconoclastic process where people just hitch themselves on to individuals who know stuff. I'm trying not to buy into that with something like this. I think there's um, there's a saying from um, a former community activist called Saul Linsky, who I'm going to, whose quote I'm going to bastardize and corrupt, um, in saying that I would rather have 15 connections than 100 followers. So 15 people that I feel comfortable with, I could potentially organise with, um, I could have a good banter with versus 100 people that would just basically just click the link and like stuff and bump up the numbers on my Facebook page. I would prefer the former rather than the latter and that's where I'm hoping to head with this podcast channel and I'm hoping that that attracts similarly minded people and to that end I'd like to keep the conversation going. So if there are other people out there who think they like for me to explore certain things. If they do have a burning wish to pop up here and talk about what's growing their gears or, or talk about their own story, um, I'm hoping what I've disclosed today might encourage people to, to say that what they've gone through or how they've lived is okay. It's what you are now that's important. Um, by all means, hit me up. So I'll conclude at this point. I feel like I'm itching to kind of go into the the political side of things, which I'll explore in my lone wolf mode in my next episode. But for now, I hope this has been of use to people. So long. Goodbye. See you next time.